Okay, this morning is March 9th. It's 2008. Our message this morning is construction and demolition. Everybody is familiar with what we would call a golden rule. In fact, they teach it in school and don't even give credit to the sources. Uh, Church, who spoke the golden rule first? Wow, Mandy thinks a Spanish guy named Jesus. The Christian world has borrowed an awful lot from Judaism, and we don't know it. Uh, In Matthew 7, starting in the 7th verse, let us pick up there. Matthew 7, and we will start in the 7th verse. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his sons asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. A teacher who was just prior to Jesus. Their lifetimes overlapped, but he would be a very old man when Jesus was born. Formed a house of teaching in Israel. The house of Hillel. Not Hallel, which is praise, but Hillel with an I. And Hillel said this in a different sense. He said, don't do to anybody else what you wouldn't want done to you. Jesus took Hillel's well-known statement and expanded upon it. In fact, it was said that there were two teachers in Israel, Hillel and Shammah, who both presented opposite views of the law on a regular basis. And in this way, Israel was benefited by having multiple views. So a Gentile had come to Shammah and said, please explain to me the law and the prophets. And Shammah chased him off with a stick that you used to build something, like a ruler because he thought it was an absurd, inane question to ask to sum up the law and the prophets in a few minutes for an unworthy Gentile. Hillel took it and met the challenge and said, don't do to anybody else what you wouldn't want done to you. Jesus expands on this and puts it in a more active sense when he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For the law and the prophets, this sums up the law and the prophets, There is a battle in the Christian world between uh, a passive nature and an active nature. In America, for whatever reason, we have been trained to sit in pews well. We have not been trained to live outside the walls of the church what we learned in those pews. Jesus took a religion that taught right things and expounded on the way in which you carry it out in your daily life. There is nothing wrong in all of the law. It teaches the moral character of God. And it was a civil constitution for a nation. Not our nation, but a nation. And the inhabitants of that nation have a unique identity covenant with it. But there was a problem. When you find a law that says something like, do no work on the Sabbath, and then you see another law that says, you need to circumcise a baby on the eighth day, what do you do when the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, and that is your job. It's what you do for a living. Jesus came to bring clarity to how we interpret the Word in every setting. And a common teaching in Jesus' day was don't do anything bad to anybody. Jesus took that and turned it on its head, said, no, I want you to do good to everybody. There's a profound difference. There's a profound gulf between those two statements. You can go put yourself as a monk in a cave somewhere, never speak, and fulfill, don't do anything bad to anyone. You cannot do the same and fulfill, do unto others what you would want done unto you. Christianity is active and it requires our participation. There's a problem with doing good things for people, though. When you do something kind, if Michelle does something kind for me, and I don't respond in kind, what does that have the potential to do to Michelle? Hurt her, right? This morning... Our theme, our topic, is about ways in which we can edify, build up, versus tear down. 
And what is interesting is not only do we tend to want to be passive and do very little, when we do decide to take action, we all think we have John the Baptist or Jeremiah's ministry. Root up and tear down. You'll find out not even the Apostle Paul took such a bold approach. When we began this building project in our church that we'll show you after church the video of, it is so funny. You, when you take children, even children, but it's true through much larger adult children, everybody is excited about the first swing of the sledgehammer to the wall, right? It is so much more fun to tear stuff down than it is to painstakingly build it. See, to tear it down takes no effort except to destroy. But to build something requires you to look at everything's function and figure out in what place it best fits, how to fasten it together, how to cause it to rise to be what it was called to be. And that takes much more patient, diligent work. All of us are born in our nature with a capacity to destroy. In fact, it comes most naturally. Anybody ever said something to you like this? It's probably me. Hey, did you see that preacher with the funny toupee on TV? Right? How edifying is that? And yet the Word tells us to only speak what is useful for building others up. But it's in our nature to want to tear down. Watching a high school uh, cafeteria is so bad, especially for the girls. A young lady walks in, and all of the girls, you see what she's wearing? Well, nobody's worn those shoes in at least a decade, a week. It's out of, out of fashion as of second hour today, you know. We have a natural tendency to want to do that. <coughs> Hillel said something good, don't hurt each other. Jesus said something better. All of the law and the prophet hangs on trying to teach you to do what is right. Turn with me to Matthew 10 then. If it's naturally within our nature to want to tear down rather than to build up, if it's naturally in our nature to not want to risk being hurt by doing good to other people, if that is our base operating system, it must be difficult then to change it. And the 37th verse of Matthew 10 says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Of all Jesus' statements, this one and one in John 6 are probably the hardest for me to, to settle. What do you mean, Jesus? And I want you to understand, to us, a cross is a piece of jewelry. Elizabeth's wearing one right now. Oh, it's pretty. Sterling silver. Pretty cross on a pretty girl. This was the electric chair of the day. This was a gruesome device of torture. It was a way in which the most shameful death could occur not just in Judaism, in the Roman world. When they wanted to exact the maximum amount of torture from someone, when they wanted to kill them in the most humiliating way, they used a cross. Isn't it interesting then that Jesus himself says, if you're going to follow him, you need to be willing to take that up every day. See, that's become just a little churchianity saying, you know, Christianese. Say, oh, well, take up your cross. The gravity of that rarely hits us. What we're saying is in any and every situation while following Jesus, whether it calls you to stand opposite your parents, opposite your children, opposite anybody you love, if you're not willing to stand opposite of them and what's more, die in the most humiliating fashion, in the most torturous way. Jesus himself said we're not worthy of him. Now, if we apply that standard, how well do you think any of us would do? Praise God for some grace in this. What he's looking for is a motive of our heart that wants to do that. Of course you're going to fail at times. You might even fail most of the time, but he's watching the direction of your life. Flip back to Matthew 7. I wonder how many of us have thought this. Pick back up in Matthew 7. 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God's will for us is not bad. In any and every situation, no matter how much it feels like you're being crucified, God's will and His plan for your life is not bad any more than a mother and father have a child who they think, wow, I want to see how difficult I can make this child's life, see if I could possibly shipwreck their faith, see if there's any way in which I can be a hindrance to them. No mother or father has ever thought that, and we're tainted. So our Heavenly Father is not looking for a way to make us stumble. He's not looking for a way to make us fall. He's looking for a way to give us good things. But anybody that has ever disciplined a child knows good and well that what you're doing for the child's benefit feels like torture to the child, doesn't it? In fact, don't we like to sit around and talk about the worst whipping we ever got? Don't we like to share stories about how mean our moms and dads were? None of that was for... Yeah, look, a couple of them back there going, no, we don't like to do that. I don't either, Mom and Dad. Never done it. (laughs) Verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are summed up by us doing good. Now watch this next phrase. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road, that leads to life, and only a few find it. I think probably, if some of the other words Jesus spoke can be difficult to understand, this one is not difficult at all, and yet its implications are horrific. If most, or many, follow a path towards destruction and only a few find life, that means this gate is very narrow. And when contemplating how narrow this gate is and what is required of us, and knowing that God wants something good for us and not bad, I began thinking, well, why is it so difficult then? Because what stands in the way is our desire to preserve ourselves, our image, our vision of what life should look like, our own calling and identity. Christianity is absolutely free. Nobody pays to become a Christian. If you do, you've been lied to by a Roman machine or something else. And yet, when you take part in this free salvation, it costs you absolutely everything. You say, well, how could that be? I thought salvation was free. It's the gift of God. Ephesians 2 says that it's an act of grace. Yes, it is an act of grace that you couldn't save yourself and that God saved you. Now that you are saved, your life is no longer your own. If you don't lose your own vision for your life and take up His, you don't stay saved. Uh Uh-oh. We've raised up doctrines to change that idea. We'll examine those here in a second. I'm not telling you this to beat you down. Remember, the thought here is that there is a righteous few who are focused on doing good to others, and that is life. That's what God wants for us as life. This narrow way is so narrow that it will divide your flesh from your spirit. It is so narrow that it will judge the attitudes and thoughts of your heart, it will divide your soulish realm from your spiritual realm. It's so narrow that it is defined by the Word of God. And what the Word of God does in our life on a daily basis is provide for us a mirror, a big bright mirror like ladies put on makeup with, with, you know, those thousand watt bulbs so you can see every pore. The Word of God is like that. And the closer you get to this mirror, the more you're able to shave off Areas of your life that you realize will not pass through that opening. Now, in the beginning, the door seems very broad. Whosoever will call upon his name shall be saved. The more you learn, you find out that calling on his name also requires obedience. And obedience in every area. And that obedience is very difficult. The more we learn, the more we find out is required of us. To he who has been given much, much is required. So, well, we'll solve that. We'll just stay ignorant. We don't want to know anymore. Pastor, don't tell us anymore. How could we be productive then? We were saved for a purpose. We're going to examine that purpose today. You were saved because God saw something in you. He said, you know what? If I just go ahead and credit Randy with righteousness right now, if I take his trust in me and credit him with righteousness, 
I bet he'll be bold enough to do good to other people. And God is trying to change a rebellion on the earth that is based on doing bad to everyone. And he needs men and women who are bold enough to stand up against our own nature, the currents of society, the passions of our flesh, and the demonic bulwark of the enemy, and take our stand for God. And it is hard to do. It's easy conceptually. You ever studied communism on paper? We're all going to be equals. It'll all be comrades. We'll have a central distribution center to make sure that everybody's equal. There'll be no difference in class or structure. That sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? It doesn't work very well, though. It doesn't work well at all. It destroys human ambition. It destroys all desire to do better. Christianity works wonderfully on paper in most places. But when you go to actually practically carry it out, you find out that it requires you to carry a cross with you everywhere you go. And most are not willing to do it. A lot of days I'm not willing to do it. Praying for strength. Lord, you've called me to be a better man than I am today. Help me. Help me in my weakness. I find myself like the guy with the demoniac child throwing himself in the fire. I said, Lord, I believe. Well, uh, help me in my unbelief, Lord. What a strange, confused statement. Well, we're strange, confused people. We confess that Jesus is Lord and sometimes our lives don't exactly match that. Our whole goal in this is to learn to do what Jesus would do, to be constructive and edifying and not to be destructive. When you look at the parables that are in Matthew, I want to tell you I had been a pastor for almost a decade before I realized this. I had always viewed Judaism as one thing, Christianity as another, like Jesus was the first Christian. Right? Now, I know that seems ignorant, but that's because I've been teaching you differently for a long time. What I was taught was basically Jesus started a new religion. Those weren't the words, but that's what I was taught. I skipped over all of those things where there were meetings of the Jews, books written to the Jews, members of the Pharisees' party in the early church, keeping Jewish customs, all of those. I missed all of that because I had a predetermined framework that it didn't fit in. Well, as that began to get stripped away because I'm getting closer to the mirror of God's Word, I saw something in Matthew I had never realized. All of the parables in Matthew are spoken to people who are supposed to be saved. To people who had death passed them over, who were baptized in a Red Sea, their obedience to God, walking right through the waters that killed others and saved them. Doesn't that sound like baptism? Paul said it was in Corinthians 10. They followed the leading of God's Holy Spirit in a visible pillar of fire at night and cloud by day. Isn't that like us? Following God's leading every day? They considered themselves sons of God by adoption because God adopted them and purchased them from Egypt. So when you think about that and you get to a parable that is a house on rock or sand... We tend to think, well, the one that's built on sands, all those lost people, those bad, malicious people out there. No, among Jesus' hearers, those who were children of God, some actually put his words into practice, and some didn't. Then you move on to a parable that is a parable of soils, or a parable of the sower. Everybody's receiving the word of God. Everybody in the nation of Israel receives the word of God. Some have bounced off their hard hearts. Some it grew for a while. Some grew for a long time but was choked out. And only one produced good fruit. Wow. All of that is written to people who are supposed to be Christians and only one of the four did all right? Hmm. Then you move on to wheat and weeds. Wheat and weeds, they look exactly alike. They're going to grow in the exact same field. The only difference is at the harvest, some are disqualified. They don't properly bow their heads. Hmm. Well, maybe the parable of the net would be different. It's the next parable in Matthew. The parable of the net says that the kingdom of God is like a net that was let down into the ocean and pulled up all kinds of fish. Whosoever will call on his name will be saved. And yet, when they pulled the fish on shore, some were disqualified and thrown out. Well, he must have been talking about bad people. He must have been talking about people who never heard the Word of God, people who were in some foreign country who just weren't American Christians. He was talking to the elect nation who all claimed to be children of God and were in covenant with Him and knew more Scripture than any of us. Huh. Get to an unmerciful servant. Next one. 
The unmerciful servant is a parable about a man who is a servant. And you know what else? What's more? His debts had all been canceled. And yet, in the end, the master threw him in prison. Why? Because he didn't do good to the other servants. Hmm. He was an employee. He had his own debts canceled. But in the end, he was in prison. Vineyard workers. All the vineyard workers are working for the master. In the end, some are chastised because of their attitude towards the other workers. Parable of the two sons. Both sons. One's obedient, one's not. Parable of the tenants. The tenants. We have one set of tenants who own, they, the master owns a vineyard. They're working it, but they are not producing the kind of life's work or fruit that the master wants. So he throws them out and brings in new tenants. And then he turns to the nation of Israel and says, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. How can you have the king, not, uh, how could the kingdom be taken away from you if you were never in it? See, God has a very, very high standard. And it always relates to two things. And guess what? You'll find this in commandments. In the first four relate to how we view and interact with God. None besides Him. Don't misuse His name. Don't make images of Him. Keep one day holy above all else to do nothing but spend time with your God. Those kind of commandments. The next six have to do with how we treat each other. The gospel hangs on this principle. Have a right view of God and do the right things with your fellow man. The gospel hangs on those principles. So when we get to a parable like Matthew 22, go ahead and turn to that one. It's the last parable we'll cover before we get into the meat of our word. By the way, for fun, especially on Wednesdays when you guys can come in with questions and all of those things, any parable that you find in Matthew that you'd like to discuss in what way it does not relate to people who are supposed to be saved, please bring it. It'll be a fruitful discussion. Find one. Spend all of your time trying to find a scenario in which it doesn't apply to the church because that's what all of the books out there say. This applies to those who are saved and then those people somewhere else. All of them were spoken to the church of the day, the congregation of Israel, the nation of priests. And so all of them apply 100% to us who are grafted into that, who are adopted into that, who are surrogates in that. And yet we're much more comfortable categorizing them in any other way. Matthew 22, this is an amazing parable. Says Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Dave, would you come write the word wedding banquet up there? You write so much better than I do. Adam does too, but you, you're our, our church scribe. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants, prophets, to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. The king has subjects. He expects them to do what he said to do. And he invites them to his son's wedding, and the sacrifice is already prepared. But few or none would come. The way was just too narrow. But they had paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business, one to his iPod, another to his business, one to MTV, another to bow hunting or fishing. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Each to his pastime. Have you noticed how many things can fall in between us and doing God's will? The first Bible study I ever set my heart to attend, before I got there, I had to work through Nights that I wasn't scheduled to work. I had to work through strange, mysterious illnesses that kept coming up. And on the day of the very first Bible study, after three weeks of failure, I'm on my way there, I got a flat tire. You think all of that is a coincidence? Everything in the world will try to prevent you from finding life. And it tries to prevent you because there is uh, a rebellious force on the planet that wants to hold us captive into death, wants to make us puppets, rather than princes. But they paid no attention and went off, one to a field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. 
The king was enraged and sent an army and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. Simple reading of history in AD 70, you see that a Jewish leadership's response to the Messiah brought in uh, the fourth Gentile kingdom to destroy the city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. He did say wedding banquet twice now, didn't he? Wedding banquet. You think maybe that's important? The setting, wedding banquet is important? The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Why would you invite them if they didn't deserve to come? This kind of a Calvinistic argument that happens all of the time. Why invite them if they didn't deserve to come? Didn't you know they wouldn't come? Well, God knew in advance. Then why did He send them invitations? It was their denial of His invitation that showed they were unworthy. Anybody who will come to Him and be obedient will be accepted, period. Everyone who does not come to Him and is not obedient is condemned already and judged unworthy. Now, we're not talking about those stuff. We're going to talk about the ones that came. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. It's no longer exclusive and esoteric. It's for the whole world. So the servants, apostles, went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. Be interested to find out which category all of you fall into. Some of us were bad and some were good, but the invitation for salvation was free to all. It didn't require a pedigree. Most of the testimonies that you hear that move you, that are really powerful, involve somebody having been bad and their nature changing. I have found out that is not the difficult task for God. That is not at all difficult for Him. He's been doing it for a long time. He takes murderers and makes them apostles. The difficult task for God seems to be to take somebody who is fairly morally good and show them their need for salvation. In fact, I would take a church that was full of drug dealers and prostitutes as long as that's what they were and now they're changing over a church that was all full of basically good people any day because those that have been forgiven much love much and that's the key to the kingdom is loving much, doing much for others. The bigger your debt, friends, the bigger your debt, the happier you are when it's canceled. That should give us some hope for our loved ones. You see somebody racking up an amazing debt, what you see is God's amazing mercy that is going to triumph over His judgment. Keep praying. Both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled. We're at a wedding. They were invited. They came. We're at the wedding. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Does that mean he was naked? No, it doesn't mean he was naked. This oriental custom has to do with the king offering a provision of clothes and the man didn't wear it. Hmm. That's interesting. You know how they would know this? It was their custom. One of the very first places John records Jesus is at a wedding. There's a proper wedding attire and if you invited somebody and they didn't have the means to get there or didn't have the means to clothe themselves properly, it was incumbent upon the person who invited them to help provide that for them. Is that all that different now? If you decide to have your wedding in Hawaii, don't you usually fly your wedding guests to Hawaii since you chose that location? Of course you do. Hmm. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. In other words, there's shock. There's genuine surprise. You received my invitation and all that came with it. Why are you here without what you're supposed to have? And the guy's speechless. Hmm. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but only a few are chosen. What an interesting parable, especially spoken to people who are all supposed to be saved. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Let's find out about these wedding clothes. The king invited them to an event, an event written on the board. So what was that event? A wedding. God's Word always sheds more light on God's Word. Scripture in light of Scripture. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, I wait till I hear pages slow down. Revelation, last book in the Bible, right before the book of Concordance and Maps. 
be the 19th chapter and the 6th verse. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our God, our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. What is our wedding garment? When we stand before Jesus, what are we supposed to be wearing? Well, He offers us a garment. What is the garment? Ephesians 2 tells us the garment is the good works He prepared in advance for us to do. Somebody asked me last night, Eric, did you teach salvation by works? So, any real salvation has works that accompany it, but salvation is an act of grace through faith alone, period, stop, end of sentence. However, if you're really saved, you'll be obedient and do the works He calls you to do. Period. Bearing fruit is required. Doing the things that He tells us to do is required. And yet we don't do it out of obligation. We do it because we realize what He's done for us. These kind of parables cause me to really think deeply about my own life. The calling is great. I'm excited about the calling. I'm excited to be walking in it. But I realized that it was a true statement when Paul said he had not yet stood before the judgment. We're all going to give an account for everything in our lives, whether good or bad. And in all of the grace, all of the adoption, all of the sloppy agape, we need to have another thing balancing that thought. This is real. And we don't want to stand before the king speechless without having done anything for him. Say, so, well, how much could you do and it would ever be enough? There could never be enough to repay the debt we owe. You can't repay it. Your debt is simply to love everyone all of the time. Period. I'm not teaching that you can save yourself. I'm teaching that because you're saved, you need to work. You need to be busy. And our church is scurrying around doing that, and I'm excited because what it means is every day we're putting on our wedding clothes. Every day we are like the virgin who put oil in her lamp. Every day we are preparing for the return of the king. And when he returns, we want to be found busy doing his work. Now, when we're talking about construction versus demolition, one of my favorite shows on television used to be Monster House. Today, Jennifer has got me watching shows about flipping houses and things. But all of them have to do with people who have a task. And it always looks the same. The task looks impossible. That's why everybody's not out there doing it. But somebody feels this burden in their heart. They look and they go, you know, that looks like a shack. But I bet it could be a mansion. You see people do this with old cars. Charlotte's daddy does this with old cars. He takes what is a pile of rust and makes it something that looks like a chariot for a king. We like these shows because inherently in us, there's something that even if you can't drive a nail, likes to see God recycle trash and make it treasure because we realize there's something in us that can identify with that. But if you watch the building crews, what makes these shows interesting, especially Monster House for me, they always have a group of varied skills. You need an electrician on a job. Sometimes they'll have a welder because they're going to do some weird metal architectural project. Sometimes you have a sheetrock guy. Sometimes you have a framing guy. All called, all invited to this wedding with a specific task. But what adds the drama to the show is there is always one personality, always one, that spends more time talking to the camera with a cup of coffee in his hand, complaining about his co-workers, explaining why his own ideas were never implemented, explaining why he's underutilized, explaining why everybody else has got it wrong and he's the only one that's got it right. And they invariably have to kick the guy off the show because the rest of the team can't work. You know? Everything that the rest of the team does is being demolished, criticized. He's not about the business of building up. He's about the business of making himself look good in front of the camera because everybody else doesn't really know what I know. You know? It's that attitude. I worked around it. I know some of you work around it. I've had it 
at times and wish I didn't. Turn with me to Corinthians 3. To be chosen, endowed, or anointed with godly skills is an awesome thing. And God has done that for everybody in this room. Now that we know that we've been anointed, that means divinely enabled for specific tasks, we need to not be loafers sitting around drinking coffee and complaining about everybody else. Every time I see a book that is authored with the intent of exposing other ministries' weaknesses, I think, what a thing to devote your time to. Does that really build the kingdom? You know, because Jesus didn't care that John the Baptist was baptizing more. Paul didn't care that he was in prison and others were preaching and some out of wrong motives. They were about building the kingdom. And I want to confess, every now and then, it's a little bit of uh, Napoleon syndrome. Sometimes we're a little too small in our own eyes, in the church and personally. And you know that that happens because the way that it surfaces is, you know, so-and-so, really. I don't know what they're about. That's, uh, that's the feel-good gospel. We begin to criticize. The work of the kingdom is about doing good to others. There are a select few that have long pointed fingers and they're called prophets that God gave them the task of pointing out sin. That's what they do. In fact, God told Jeremiah, I will set you above the nations. You will pull them down and root them up. What an awesome responsibility. How would you like to have that one? We say, oh, world peace. It's all good. You know, can't, can't we all just get along? Jeremiah had the anointing from God the divine enablement to do that. I didn't receive that. I have a task. This is my task. This is my field. I'm going to try continually, constant refining process in Eric, to confine criticism and uh, encouragement to this field because this is the one God's assigned me to. Listen to how Paul said this in Corinthians 3. In Corinthians 3, starting in the first verse, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. How'd you like to get this letter from your pastor? Right? Some people get mad at me for just reading the scripture. I can't imagine if I wrote them a personal letter and called them this. Yeah. Look, here's an email, John. I could, you know, I could never say that to John. John's outstanding among the saints. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. That's a little condescending, isn't it? Indeed, you are not, still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? If the requirements for being worldly are jealousy and quarreling, lots of us could be in trouble, huh? Well, why does he have that? I don't know what that dude needs that big auditorium for. Quarreling. What do we quarrel over? Anything we want and don't get, right? Isn't that what James says? Are you not acting like mere men? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, yes, you're acting like mere men. What's wrong with that? Aren't we men? Don't you hear that argument sometimes? Well, I've got to live in this flesh. I mean, we're all sinners falling short of the glory of God. We're not called to be mere men. That's what we were. We're called to be supernatural men. We're called to be saints of the living God, a cut above all else because God Himself has poured His character into us. He's given us strength we wouldn't otherwise have. That's why we call it supernatural. It's above our natural means. Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Why do we have sectarian designations on our signs of our churches? Why, when somebody asks you if you're a Christian, is your response the denomination. It's almost as if this paragraph didn't exist in Bibles, huh? So, well, that's why we're non-denominational. Really? So is that what you tell people? I'm not one of those sectarian guys. I'm non-denominational. Hasn't that become another sectarian group? What's wrong with just, I am a Christian. My life's ambition is to let God's character be formed in me, and the best expression of that is by loving you. That needs to be our goal. What, after all, is Apollos? I love this, because we exalt leaders. We talk about the great man of God. What makes him great? He's the CEO of the church. 
Millions of people read their books. Their audience goes way out. And we lift them up like movie stars. Listen to the attitude of the guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. What, after all, is Apollos? Well, we're clear with that. That's fine, right? It's easy to, to, to... What, after all, is Casey, right? I can diminish others. That's not a problem. He must have known Apollos pretty well to be able to do that, though, huh? Maybe there was some brotherly love there. He knew Apollos wouldn't be offended. Listen to how he follows it up. And what is Paul? It's hard for me to even read that. I think, what do you mean, what is Paul? Paul, you're the great and anointed apostle. You're the one that five times endured the rod, twice shipwrecked. Paul, you're the one that was in prison for my benefit. Paul, you are a great man of God. That may be true in God's eyes, but in Paul's eyes, he was still small, which is what his Roman name means. And it's what he went by all of his life after conversion. Saul was a great anointed king of Israel, considered better than all others. Paul meant small, and it was his Roman name, and that's what he chose to go by. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. Every one of you in here has tasks that were assigned. In general, we know it's to do good to others, but that's too broad. He has more specific tasks for you. And much like on Monster House, if you don't get your tasks done, it falls to someone else to do. When we wake up each day, we really ought to consider, Lord, what do you have laid out for me to do? Because I know you didn't save me just to warm the bench. In fact, the most dark, dismal times in my entire life have been when I simply did not know what to do. I find great strength, great freedom in the Lord. I feel a sense of His anointing and power when I'm doing things for other people. When I don't know what to do, everything spirals inward. I begin to be too focused on Eric and Eric's own life, and depression can set in. When we are focused on the needs of others and meeting those, an amazing thing happens. God meets our own needs. That's why Christianity is supposed to be centrifugal always spinning outward from Judea to Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's supposed to spread outward. We were never made to spin inward. Each is past. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants, And the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, His building. We are a building project meant to display something. We're supposed to be displaying God's intent, God's character, His desire for the whole world. But I found out something. If we're God's field, God's building... If you go to a construction site and you see a pile of two-by-fours, and maybe there's some two-by-sixes for rafters, maybe there's some copper tubing for plumbing, and all of this stuff is in a great big pile, it just looks like trash. You have no idea whether there's a need to assemble it or whether this is the scraps left over. All of those things are great, and it is good to be cold, and it's good to be assigned your task. But if we don't know how we relate to our brothers and sisters around us, if we don't find our place in the body, then we don't rise to be the building that God has called. What's happening in our church is we're forming a foundation. Everybody is being placed firm-footed on Jesus and His character. We're learning the things that we are called for that is unique to us. And now is the phase where we begin to learn how we relate and love each other. And as we do that, what happens is a structure begins to rise where people can go, that building over there, that's Popeye's chicken. That building, that's, that's food town. This building here, that's most obviously God. You don't have to have a sign on your forehead that says Christian for people to see that you're a Christian. We ought to be wearing our linen garments, our righteous acts. And I'm going to put a great big sign on our church, but that better not be the only reason people know that it is a church. See, what we're trying to learn to do is relate properly to each other. Somebody's job is to solder joints together, help fix marriages. 
Somebody's job is to stub up plumbing or to lay down a foundation of wood so that walls can be built. Maybe children's ministry. Somebody's job is to make sure that the water buckets are full and the radio is on. Maybe a sound man. Somebody's job is to paint. Spread love everywhere. Cover over a multitude of defects. These are all jobs in the church that are real. They just don't come with a salary. In fact, it costs you your whole life to be able to do it. That's what the kingdom is. It's a kingdom of self-sacrifice. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. I love Paul. He says he's nothing. He says, what is he? Then he calls himself an expert builder. The only thing Paul was proud of in Paul's life was the work he was doing for Jesus. Hmm. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation for every work that we do, when we say it's Jesus Christ, that just sounds like a, uh, just some kind of noun. It's the example that he set. Considering others better than yourself, washing their feet, loving them, serving them, laying down your life for the benefit of others. That is the foundation for all God's work. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. God requires that we begin and try to build with all of our heart. His work done through us will be judged by fire. Whether or not you receive a reward for it depends on whether or not you did what he told you to do in the way he told you to do it. Have you ever gone to do something for Jesus and started in faith and ended up in something else? Like, I want to go help somebody move. I want to go bake somebody food. But along the way, you got a flat tire, stubbed your toe, didn't have the baking soda or something, and what was meant to be a sacrifice of blessing suddenly is kind of begrudging. Or maybe... Maybe you did it once and now they expect it twice. Yeah? See, we've all done those things. That's when gold becomes straw. You start to lose a reward for that. After all, Jesus told us that if we wanted something credited to our account in heaven, we needed to pick those people who could not repay us in any way. So don't throw a feast for your friends. Instead, invite the ones you know cannot repay you and your Father will credit you. See, this is so very backwards to the way that everything else works that it's hard for even us who are swimming in the Word, being baptized in it daily. But we're supposed to be a part of God's building crew. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? When each part is doing his part or her part, what begins to happen is it becomes visible to others that God is among us. Paul goes on to call this a treasure in a jar of clay. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Let's read the famous one from Ephesians 2, the one that you teach little kids to quote. Starts in Ephesians 2, and uh, I guess we'll pick up in the 8th verse. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith or trust. Faith is trust. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift, gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. We're God's craftsmanship. His working. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means when God saved Nick Slaughter, when He gave him a wife, when he blessed them with Lily, he had work for them to do. Part of the work, quite honestly, is raising a family so that there will be a next generation that will carry on this. Part of the work is obviously praise and worship. Don't you see that? Of course you do. It's work that God prepared for him to do. There's a couple ways that you know whether God prepared the work for you to do or not. Is there any glory in it for you? Well, then it's suspect. You need to judge it and see whether it's hay or straw. 
What's your motive for doing it? That's one way to judge whether or not it came from God. Are you so worn out with it that it is not a joy to you? That could be that it's not from God. Or it could be that you need to make adjustments and it is from God. Paul labored with the energy that he said God gave him. When we're worn out and frustrated, we're either not getting the energy that God gave us or we're doing something God doesn't want us to do. Have you noticed how often Jesus went without sleep, stayed up all night praying? There's only one time in all the Gospels recorded he was tired. Isn't that interesting? God must have provided for him the strength that he needed because he was doing only what the Father had him to do. Look at the 19th verse. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone. We're having this problem in the building we're building right now. There's tiles on the floor that are not square with the walls. There are walls that are not square with each other. There are ceiling tiles that are in a grid that are not square with the walls or the floor. You know what you do in a situation like that? You lay something down and you make everything else square to it. See, God looked at the world and said, this thing is fouled up. That's a better word than one of those things you drive in with a drill, huh? fouled up and nothing in it is square. So what I'm going to do is lay down the perfect thing by which everything else can be measured and it's hard because it's precious to me. It's the very best that I have. But we will measure everything else in the world by this one true straight thing. And what we need to do is constantly compare ourselves to it. And we get narrower and narrower in the flesh and broader and broader in the spirit. That's what happens. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. One of the most difficult things for people to do who have never been associated with something like this is figure out how you share your lives with each other when you're all strangers, you know? We tend to want to be a little secluded, a little private, not to let people see into us too deeply because we're used to being guarded. We're used to protecting ourselves so that nothing can hurt us. And yet, the gospel is founded upon the fact that if Jesus is the cornerstone and he sacrificed everything, his reputation, everything for us, that we measure ourselves against him, and Casey comes, stands next to me and measures himself against Jesus, that what's happening is we are being united together into something that, number one, is intimately bound, and number two, God himself dwells in, and people can see that. How cool is that? Every other religion in the world puts its focus on brick and mortar because brick and mortar is what is respectable. Brick and mortar is what people can see that is tangible. In fact, I find myself a little bit excited that we have brick and mortar to hang a sign on coming. I really do. And yet, I'm reminded constantly, this is not what the church is. It's not a collection of brick and mortar. Any pagan temple in this town, and there are a bunch of them, has those. What makes us a church is when we are intimately joined with each other and God dwells in our midst. That's where you hang your sign. That's where you're excited about. Well, why teach on all of this now? I mean, after all, you're building a building. Because I want the church to be in the people. I want us to be founded on what is right, not glorying in something else, even though I'm very excited about it. We'll cease to become the church God called us to be if each of us don't perform the task God called in advance for us to do. In fact, what we'll be is a bless me group with uh, an idiot king for pastor. We'll put my name on a big sign out there so God can knock it down in front of the whole world and we can all be humble. How many times has that already happened? I just don't want to do it. I want to be about building up each other and building up our lives. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews 11. Abraham had one promise 
that compelled him to do everything that he did. And when you think about what he did, he fathered children in old age. He threw one out when God said throw him out. How hard must have that been? He left his father's household, left behind a nephew. Did all kind of amazing things. And Hebrews 11, the 10th verse, tells us why. Hebrews 11, starting in uh, 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. What we find in the Bible is a story of a, a bride being prepared. And we all know that we're the bride, but we feel the story of the bride being prepared. And what we found in Revelation 19 is how she's dressed is with righteous acts. Then we see this other parallel story going on all of the time that has to do with a city that is being built. And the city has costly stones in it. It has foundations in it. And the most amazing thing happens in the book of Revelation. An angel says, come John, come on buddy. I'm going to show you the bride. And John goes and he's looking for the bride and he says, it's a city coming down from heaven. The new Jerusalem. And what we find out is that the bride and the city are one and the same. The same way a bride puts on her dress, we're putting on righteous acts. The same way that you stack brick on top of brick, stud next to stud, putting everything in its proper place, God is arranging us in His house to display His glory by serving mankind. And when it's all said and done, what it is, is something that has become one with God. See, when you look at a temple, that's supposed to be a representation of that God that they serve. When you look at us, we're supposed to be a representation of God. When you look at a bride, what you're supposed to be is somebody who is one with her husband. What we are built to convey to the entire world is God's nature. So if somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you tell them they're number one. We just misrepresented God's nature to the world. This is why it's so important what we do. Sinners sin. That's what they do, just like dogs bark. But what we do is supposed to represent the King of Kings. And he set such a high example that this is a difficult task. The kind of task that you better have his strength and his spirit in you to be able to do. We're laughing and joking as we're building because that's what we do. Uh, we're, we're clowns. I mean, the truth is the men in this fellowship, uh, there are a few of you that are respectable, but the rest of us are clowns. <laughs> and every once in a while, usually me, we push it just a little further than we should. And I feel God putting the brakes on going, ooh, ooh, I laugh. I joke. I even laugh at my enemies. But don't get involved in coarse joking. It's not useful for building others up. You follow what I'm saying? I want our lives to be about building others up. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. We've got just a couple of scriptures here. One of the things that I found so neat is in the Bible, you have this unique relationship between Paul and Peter. Peter comes in and he's been with Jesus the whole time. I mean, he's kind of Jesus' chief Talmudim, his oldest disciple. Paul comes in like one unnaturally born, out of season. But Paul had all the religious qualifications, and Peter was a fisherman. They were from completely different worlds. Paul's from Jerusalem. Uh, Peter's from Galilee. Galilee is like cut off Louisiana. I mean, it's uh, you can't even get there from here. You've got to start somewhere else that's so far away. And... Uh, their accents, everything about it gave them away. This is why the Pharisees sometimes say, you from Galilee too? Like, are you from some no-account little country town too? And yet, you see Paul and Peter interacting in a unique way. Sometimes, Paul seems to be going to Peter and the other pillars for approval. And yet, not really. He says, you know, whatever they are makes no difference to me. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't running my race in vain. And other times, you see Paul stand up and rebuke Peter right in front of everybody. And yet, when they write, the educated Jew from Jerusalem, the uneducated Jew from Galilee, that have both been with Jesus, listen to how similar what Peter writes is to what Paul writes. In 1 Peter 2, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Didn't you hear Paul say that? 
so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the Scripture says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts or puts his faith in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected have become the capstone. You see two footnotes there. It's kind of interesting. Some say, no, it says cornerstone. That's one of the footnotes. It's not a capstone, it's a cornerstone. However, when you go read it in Isaiah, Isaiah 8, it's most obviously uh, a capstone. So how can Jesus both be the cornerstone and the capstone? If you're not from a family that builds, if you've never been around this, I can understand why it doesn't make sense. What it is literally saying is that Jesus is the thing in the foundation that everything else has to be square to, and he's also the final piece of the puzzle on the very top that is the pinnacle that everything is looking at. The capstone is the last stone in an archway that holds it all together. The Romans figured out how to build them. They're on a V so that you build the arch and then all the weight rests on a center stone. This is so that he's the first and he's the last. He's the beginning and he's the end and we're saved by trusting in him from the beginning of the project all the way to the end of the project. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Why would Jesus make anybody fall? Because when looking at him, you find out how true he is, how straight, how square, and how crooked we are. And that's something that is hard for most human beings to deal with. In fact, they would rather hide it. They would rather do what the Bible says, shrouded in darkness, than bring it into the light of God's Word. So I'm asking you to do something bold, saints. I'm asking you to do something that most will not do, because only a few find this way. I'm asking you to shine the light of God's Word onto every area of your life, onto your personal life, onto your business life, your church life, and measure yourself against Jesus and find out where we need to tighten it up a little bit, where we need to straighten up, and then evaluate how should I be spending my time, what should I be doing, because God has tasks that He's designed for me and me alone to do. Now, this takes boldness because it requires you to carry His cross with you everywhere, which means you feel Him tugging at your heart to go knock on your neighbor's door, but you do not want to knock on your neighbor's door because what if he says no? What if he's not home? You remember the time he ran over your tulips and you don't like him very much. There's all kinds of reasons. The biggest one is your own fear and insecurity. But when you measure yourself against that stone and say this is the only way I can build and the whole thing rise rightly, we have to do it. And we overcome that which natural men cannot overcome and we show ourselves to be of supernatural nature. And God is glorified in that. How cool is that? He goes on to say, they stumble because they disobey the message. That's fine as long as it's they, but what about us? Will we become obedient or not? Which is also what they were destined for. Well, how do you know they were destined for it? Because it's what they did. This is the same wedding garment argument. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you. We're going to close with these ideas. In Luke 6, the difference between somebody who was wise and somebody who was unwise is whether or not they put into practice Jesus' words. And the man who was wise was like somebody who had a house built on a rock, a cornerstone. The, wise man had a, uh, the unwise man had a house that would never stand. The storms would knock it down every time because it was not built on something true and straight. 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us that what we are really waiting for while we're walking around these tents of flesh is for God's eternal building to be built in us. In 2 Corinthians 10.8, Paul makes a very profound statement. He says, God has given me authority. 
And he's saying this in a manner in which he has just severely corrected a church. Maybe the worst whipping with a pen anybody has ever received. He actually says, would you prefer that I come to you with a stick? I mean, the apostle that God called said that to a church. And he goes, but look, I have authority from God to build you up, not to tear you down. I want to tell you something. There are no voices in your life that have authority to pull you down. There is nobody that has been given authority from God to make you feel like a miserable human being. There is nobody who has been given authority to tell you what a failure you are. There is an enemy who will accuse you all of the time. He'll tell you that every mistake your children make is your fault. He'll tell you every mistake that your spouse makes is your fault. He'll tell you that every mistake that you've made disqualifies you from the kingdom. And that's not at all what Jesus says. In fact, the difference between what is conviction and what is condemnation is the fruit that it produces. If when you hear these voices, what it produces in you is a desire to crawl in a hole and quit, it was the devil. If what it produces in you is a desire to know, I can live better than this. I can do more than this. I don't have to be a mere man. I can be a godly man. Then it's from the Holy Ghost. Paul himself, in writing his letter while giving them a verbal thrashing, stops and pauses. And he says, there's only one purpose for this, though. It's edifying you. So he's trying to compel them to become more than they were that day, not for them to be defeated. Then the last scripture that I had for you today was in Ephesians 4. And it says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but instead only what is useful for building each other up. So I give you a divine mission this week. We are putting steel studs up for walls. We're putting sheetrock up in a church building. We'll be laying carpet. We're doing plumbing, all kind of things. But none of those things are what the church is built on. They're built on the way that you treat each other. They're built on the way that you represent God. And what declares us to be a church is not a sign that you have to get a permit from the city for it's your behavior. And I love you and I'm proud of you. And I want to see you be everything that God's called you to be. We have miraculous stories in here. People saved from death. People saved from unimaginable situations who are now doing glorious things. That's what makes this a church. Uh, Y'all stand your feet. We'll pray. Then I have a video to show you.